Hello, welcome to World War II, The Key Questions, answered by me, Lawrence Reese. I specialised in writing books and making television documentaries about World War II, the Third Reich and Stalinism for many years, and my latest book, Hitler and Stalin, The Tyrants and the Second World War, has recently been published here in the UK and in America. In this podcast, talking to my daughter Camilla, I'm going to give my answer to the key question, how did Auschwitz evolve into a place where over a million people were murdered. Today we're going to be talking about Auschwitz, which was the site of the largest mass murder in history. How did it all start? Auschwitz was opened as a concentration camp by the Nazis in the spring of 1940. It was in occupied Poland, but it was in a part of Poland that the Nazis wanted to incorporate into the Reich proper. And an SS officer called Rudolf Hess was detailed to go down there and convert a group of buildings on the edge of the town of Oswiecim, Auschwitz in German, Oswiecim in Polish, convert these buildings into a concentration camp. This wasn't an extermination camp. This wasn't the death camp that it was to become. But equally, it was an extremely dangerous place for anyone to be sent. The people who were sent there in the spring of 1940 were not predominantly Jews. They were predominantly Polish political prisoners. There were some Jews amongst them, but they were not selected necessarily because they were Jews. They were selected because they were part of a group of people who in that area, the Germans wanted to control and punish and to remove from the general population. So Auschwitz really was at that stage... A, a place of horror, absolutely terrible, terrible punishments and tortures and people, terrible place indeed to go, but not a place of systematic mass murder and certainly not a place of systematic mass murder where there were enormous numbers of Jews. Nonetheless, we've got to remember that it still was a very dangerous place to be, as I said. So over half of the 23,000 Poles first sent to Auschwitz were dead within 20 months. So you can see the level of suffering that was created there by the Nazis. But it was a camp modelled on the old concentration camps back in Germany, which had been built and opened before the war. Places like Dachau, just outside Munich. And in fact, someone like Rudolf Hess was one of the uh, many SS officers who had been trained in running a concentration camp and being an officer in a concentration camp back in Dachau. So he was bringing that knowledge to Auschwitz. So it wasn't associated in the beginning with the mass killing of Jews? No, that's not what it was built for. That's what it became, but it wasn't what it was built for. In fact, the whole history of Auschwitz is an extremely complex and complicated one. To give you one example from this period... In July 1941, a number of people who were in Auschwitz were taken away and gassed. But here's the thing. They weren't gassed because they were Jews and they weren't gassed in Auschwitz. What happened was in July 1941, there was the enforcement of a plan called 14F13, which was part of the Nazis' euthanasia scheme. I always think that the word euthanasia for that scheme in the context of the Nazis is, is the wrong word. What we're talking about is murder. And in July 1941, this scheme was extended to concentration camps, whereby 
people who were inmates who were sick or incredibly weary or deemed not useful to, to keep in the concentration camps were selected and taken away to these extermination centers, many of which were in mental hospitals and murdered in gas chambers there. So in July 1941, about 500 inmates of Auschwitz were selected and transported to Germany and killed in one of these extermination centres. So it's a, an interesting and, of course, tragic fact that the first people who were gassed as a result of being in Auschwitz were, in fact, not selected, as I say, because they were Jewish, although there may well have been some Jews among them, but they were selected because they were thought not not fit to work, and they were taken away and gassed at a separate location. So when was the first major killing action at Auschwitz? Well, it depends how you define major killing action. The, As I say, thousands of people who were sent to Auschwitz had already died as a result of being in Auschwitz by this point, and by this point I'm talking about is the summer of 1941. But I think you can argue that the first major killing action at Auschwitz happened in the summer of 1941 when there arrived at the camp a large number of Soviet political officers. Remember that there is this huge invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941. Part of that war is this order called the Commissar Order, which is an infamous order, which meant that political officers were going to be shot. Soviet political officers were going to be shot on capture. Now, what happened was there were a number who evaded being identified as political officers when they were captured, but were only subsequently identified by the Germans as being such once they were actually in, in regular camps. And there was a decision taken that what should happen to them was they would be taken from those camps to places like Auschwitz, where they would be killed. And that they were taken to a number of different concentration camps. And really within each camp, there was very often, there were similarities, but there was often differences in how these poor, unfortunate Soviet prisoners of war, commissars, political officers, were killed. In Auschwitz, in the summer of 1941, they were killed by being made to work in a gravel pit, just by, just near, in fact, the infamous gate that says Arbeit mach frei, across the entrance to the main camp of Auschwitz. And here, they were forced to work in this gravel pit, and some were shot down there, some were killed by overwork. But I've met other prisoners who survived and witnessed this and the the terrible sights of these commissars being killed still haunted some of them to this day the idea that that they were being treated these people so appallingly so brutally so that's certainly one one killing action that you can point to and say there is a a heightening of the immediate sense in which people are going to be killed they're not just killed by attrition or killed by torture or killed by various other means, but this is a a large group of people who are going to be targeted and killed because they belong to a a group that the Nazis essentially want rid of. And do you think that is because of the war starting and because of the type of people that were brought there? And as you said, that they particularly wanted to get rid of the Soviet prisoners of war, or was it a kind of change in policy? Well, it was a change in policy as a result of that war. So it was that the Polish political prisoners who'd been taken there were not considered the level of threat that these political commissars were. And what's fascinating about it, too, there's another conceptual difference, which is that these political commissars 
were sent to Auschwitz to die. There were, there were a number of different ways they could die, but they were sent there to die. Whereas, actually, up prior to this point, uh, the majority, there were some who were sent to be uh, killed who opposed political prisoners, but the majority of people sent to Auschwitz were not sent there to die over a short period. They were sent there as a punishment and to face terrible brutality that resulted, as I say, if you think of the figures, in thousands and thousands of them dying anyway. But that wasn't the conceptual concept from the very beginning in a way it was for these people, the commissars. And I think that you have to think of that as being part of the escalation that was happening as a result of the the war in the East. The war in the East against the Soviet Union was really absolutely a all-or-nothing gamble for the Nazi regime. Hitler talked often about how it was either going to be victory or, or the extermination of the German people. This was this was an all-or-nothing, burn-your-boats operation. And in the context of that, all sorts of atrocities are going to occur. Auschwitz is infamously associated with killings by gas. When and why did that begin? Shortly after the commissars suffered this fate, there was a a decision taken in Auschwitz. Nobody knows exactly exactly the day. There was an initiative taken in the camp to devise a new method of, of killing. Bear in mind, we've just talked about how some prisoners had been sent away under 14F13, had been sent away to be gassed back in Germany. Soviet Selected Soviet commis- uh, political officers had arrived and they were being killed in the gravel pits of Auschwitz. So Auschwitz is ramping up its association with killing. And there's a decision taken in the camp that a new method of killing should be looked at. They are already using an insecticide called Zyklon B, which is incredibly poisonous when it crystals, which when exposed to air are incredibly poisonous in a confined space, especially in a confined space when there is any kind of heat involved. SS decide to experiment with this. And Block 11 in the main camp of Auschwitz is the prison within a prison. It's a place where you're sent within Auschwitz to be further punished as if being in Auschwitz wasn't to suffer enough. And there are cells in the basement of Block 11. So they start conducting, by the autumn of 1941 for sure, they are conducting killing experiments in those cells in the basement of Block 11. They put Soviet prisoners of war and sick prisoners in these cells in the basement. They throw in crystals of the insecticide Zyklon B and then wait. And there are terrible stories of just how much these poor people suffered as the crystal and the gas, the poisonous gas takes effect. Because the Nazis at this stage are unaware of issues of adequate sealing of the room to ensure that this becomes an efficient gas chamber. They don't know how long, how many crystals to put in. They don't know. They're experimenting with killing. And so sometimes these poor people are suffering for hours and hours and hours in terrible agony before they eventually die. But this is the first use of Zyklon B at Auschwitz as a killing method. It seems to have come from an initiative within the camp looking for a, a, quote, better, unquote. And by better, of course, we mean better for the Nazis, not better for the poor people who suffered, better method of killing. And so they're starting to use this use of Zyklon B within Block 11. Now, it's not it doesn't work in the sense that whilst they're groping that the SS towards working out exactly how much Zyklon B to use, how to seal the rooms and so on. They have an issue with the fact that the killings they're conducting are in Block 11 
And that's because in order to dispose of the bodies, what they have to do is to get the bodies out of the basement and transport them through the camp to the crematorium within the camp where the bodies could be burnt. And that actually is at the other end of the main camp. So these bodies are going backwards. Uh, these bodies are going across the camp. So any thought that they might have that they were going to keep what they were doing in any way secret or confined it just is, is an impossibility. So clearly they discover and they think, OK, Cyclone B can work as a way of killing, but this location is no good for us. When studying history, we often try and understand the mindset of people involved with big world events and why they did what they did uh, or how their mindsets, what mindsets were in those situations. Hearing about all of these terrible atrocities now, do you think that we can understand the mindset of the people involved, especially obviously the, the perpetrators? Because, you know, sitting here talking about it, it's very hard to even wrap your mind around this kind of absolutely brutal and evil atrocity? I think that's a, it's a very profound question. I think it, this, it's probably, it's too big a question. It's a separate, we ought to do a separate podcast on that for a, perhaps another day because it's a huge, huge, huge issue. In the context of Auschwitz, I think what you have to understand is that someone like Rudolf Hurst, the commandant, has already been through a whole brutalization process in terms of his own background and experience working at Dachau. He's an absolute believer in the Nazi cause. He's a believer in making sure that he follows through on orders that he's been given. And he's a, he's a believer, and as so many of them were, that they were trained to be hard and to do the essential jobs that other people were not tough enough to do. So what's happening here is that they are going to solve a problem. And this is part of the difficulty in even talking about it is we talk about, you know, you, you can say, well, let's try and understand the mentality by how they're approaching this. And, and one, one way I think is useful to understand it is to say they're approaching this, the SS, as a problem to be solved. But of course, immediately you express it that way, you're in danger because the problem was for the people who are being killed. The terrible, the, the terrible problem we have to face is... The problem is how could Auschwitz and what they're doing be brought into the world? That's the that's the problem. But paradoxically, for the SS at Auschwitz, this is a problem-solving exercise. So they are tasked with the killing of the Soviet commissars, for example. And there's a sense in which they look on these people who are arriving already, they believe, as subhuman. They believe they are the absolute key components of Bolshevism, which is a ideology they despise and detest and, and are fearful of. Th these are very much the other, the people that are arriving. And they are tasked with disposing of these people. So, so in a strange way, what you have to see with the development of Zyklone B is a problem-solving apparatus in place for, for the SS, that they're actually finding a way of killing that is less difficult for them than previous methods. So what happens in the context of their devising of this method of killing in Block 11 in the autumn of 1941 is they decide that the use of Zyklon B is effective, but the location isn't effective. So 
They then move the killing to the actual crematorium within the camp. A room next to the ovens is sealed off and people are taken in there and gassed. And then, of course, for the SS, you only have to move the bodies a few feet directly into the ovens. So so you can see that as they've identified a problem and they're solving the problem. And the people who are dying are people who they see as an absolute real and direct threat to their own aims in terms of what they want to achieve with strengthening the Reich and so on. So they are responding, as they see it, also to an absolute need within the system, but they are problem solving within it. It's horrendous to see it that way because we don't think of problem solving being used in such a a horrendous, nefarious way, but that's how they, I believe, are looking at it. So what happened when they moved the killing then next to the ovens? Well, they try and do the killing there. And bear in mind, they're not killing Jews yet en masse at all. What they're doing is they're killing, they were, these are Soviet, the first experiments that are taking place here are on Soviet prisoners of war and sick prisoners. Then what seems to happen towards the end of 1941, start of 1942, Jews from the local area who can no longer work are brought there to be killed. So you're beginning to see that Auschwitz is becoming involved in the killing of Jews for being Jews. But what the SS discover is that Block 11 wasn't working as an ideal killing location. The crematorium in the main camp isn't working ideally as a killing location. I mean, this whole subject is horrendously upsetting and macabre, but it's important to, to try and understand these details. They have a problem, as I use the word again, problem in quotes. They have a problem with with the crematoria, because whilst they've solved the difficulty of transporting the bodies from where they're killed to the disposing of the bodies, the crematoria is still adjacent to other buildings. You can still see it today. It's still there, the crematoria. You can visit this place. It's adjacent to other buildings in the camp. So they have a problem with people screaming. They have a problem with noise. They have a problem with people essentially knowing in the rest of the camp what's going on there. I mean, there's one description of how they try and deal with that by revving up uh, truck engines so as to create noise to to drown out the terrible screams. But actually, that's clearly, for them, not going to be a a long-term solution. Why did it matter that people, that other people within the camp knew that this was going on? That's a very interesting question. You've got to remember that Auschwitz is different from the death camps that are going to come up as the Holocaust starts to really ramp up. Auschwitz is different in that it never, ever ceases to be multifunctional. A camp like Treblinka, a camp like Belzec, a camp like Sobibor, these camps were built purely with one essential purpose, which was to murder. So they are much more straightforward operations. They're they're smaller in area. They are, for all sorts of reasons, these these are different places. Auschwitz is multifunctional in a way these other camps never were. It's multifunctional in that it still remains a concentration camp for prisoners to be sent who aren't necessarily going to be killed immediately. These prisoners could be transported elsewhere. These prisoners are working, can be working elsewhere. These prisoners can be, um, survive for much longer than someone who's just turning up and going to be murdered instantly. So there's a desire to keep the fact that this mass murder is happening there, quiet, because it's recognised that what is going 
on there is not something that you want to shout to the world. It's not necessarily that people, that the SS think what they're doing is wrong. It's that it's so much better for them from their point of view to actually keep it quiet. All sorts of reasons to to keep it quiet. For example, if you, again, put, you you say put yourself in their shoes, it's it's virtually impossible for us because of, of what we're talking about. But you can imagine how a key aspect of this from the, really from the beginning is secrecy because you don't want the people who are turning up there to know what's going to happen to them. There's testimony relating to some of the very first arrivals of Jews from the local area to the crematorium in the main camp to be killed. That shows people observing this, that shows that the Jews were told, don't worry, you're going to be admitted into this camp. You just need to take a shower as part of the procedure by which you're admitted to the camp. In fact, the idea, this this horrible, grotesque deception that you were in fact going to take a shower, but actually what was going to happen was you're going to be gassed. This deception didn't originate in Auschwitz. It actually originated as part of the euthanasia killings. You remember I mentioned earlier that selected disabled people were taken to killing centres and murdered by carbon monoxide gas. These places where they were killed actually had fake shower heads within them. And so you were taken into a room and believed it was you were going to get a shower as part of cleansing process. And why are they doing that? Why are they operating this deception? Well, because it makes their job easier. It makes the job of the killers easier. If people knew that they were about to go into a building and be murdered, obviously they're going to be reluctant to go in and they're going to resist or they're going to, there's going to be terrible problems. So therefore, the more this can be kept a secret, the eventual fate can be kept a secret, the easier it is for the killers. The whole process is evolving, as you can see, to make it easier for the killers. And this is part of that. And so then with this in mind and the problem that they had in Auschwitz initially of people hearing the screaming, how did they try and solve it? Where did they move the killings to then? What's happening now is that from the autumn of 1941, the Nazis were building a new camp, something totally new, about a a mile and a half or so away from the main camp of Auschwitz. The main camp of Auschwitz, which is actually on the edge of Auschwitz-Siem, just by the Sola River. This camp is going to be up at a place that the Nazis called Birkenau. And this was a much bigger camp. And originally, Himmler had intended this camp to be built as a place to hold Soviet prisoners of war. But the function changed at the beginning of 1942, and it was decided that this was going to be a place where Jews were going to be sent. And Birkenau, it's huge. There are wide open spaces within it and remote spaces within it. This this is a place that, is, unlike Auschwitz, isn't near a centre of population, Auschwitz main camp is very close to the actual town of Auschwitz. This isn't at all. It's much more remote. And so they identify the SS, two peasant cottages within the vast area of Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they decide to convert those two peasant cottages into makeshift gas chambers by blocking up the windows, of course, and devising slits through which they can throw the Zyklon B. And in the late spring of 1942, the first Jews are taken here to be gassed. And what's happening now is that you can see that Auschwitz is beginning 
to be an important part, although not by any means the most important part yet, of what the Nazis called the final solution to the Jewish problem, which was the extermination of the Jews. Auschwitz was going to be a place where Jews from outside of the area were taken to be killed. If you look at a camp like Treblinka, where predominantly the Jews who died there were Polish Jews, mainly from the Warsaw Ghetto, camp like Helmo, where large numbers of Jews from the Lodz Ghetto in Poland were murdered, Auschwitz is going to be a camp where large numbers of Jews from outside of the country are taken. So there's a huge influx of Slovakian Jews starting in the spring, uh, late spring of 1942. And many of them are going to die in these peasant cottages. But from the point of view of the SS, this was still a problematical solution. Because whilst they'd worked out how to kill people with Zyklon B in a remote area, they were taking the bodies out of the peasant cottages and burying them nearby. I say they, actually, you were seeing now that prisoners, came to be known as Zonderkommando, were actually going to be involved in the process of doing this. They were the ones who had to go in and do the horrendous, unspeakable tasks of cleaning out these gas chambers of bodies, of taking them away and trying to dispose of the bodies. From the perspective of the SS, this is an attempt to remove themselves from the horror of the practical process of killing. And these bodies are buried. But what happened was in the summer, the bodies begin to putrefy because they are quite near the surface. Birkenau is a a damp area. The SS always had drainage problems with the camp and the bodies begin to putrefy. So then they come to the surface. It's the stuff of absolute nightmares and they have to be taken away and burnt. And they're still searching for, from their point of view, the most efficient way of of killing. So how did Auschwitz come to play such a central role in the extermination of the Jews specifically? Well, in the spring of 1943, you find two buildings opened in much more central position within Birkenau, which were built, designed initially as crematoria. That's to say they're designed as places to burn bodies. And what happened during the design process, and there's a whole load of scholarly work on this, what happened during the design process is they begin to be altered in their design, these buildings, to also incorporate gas chambers. Selected people, mostly Jews by now, are led into the basement of these buildings where there's an undressing room. They're told to undress. Once again, the horrible fiction of the shower is told to them. They're then led forward, pushed into an adjacent room, which is the gas chamber. Again, it has the shower heads, fake shower heads. So it looks like they're going to be given a shower as promised. They're locked in, hermetically sealed into this this room. Zyklon B pellets are placed into the gas chambers and the people are killed. Horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. And again, you can see the remains of this building still at Auschwitz-Birkenau, or two buildings. They're parallel mirror images of each other's. Then, because the original design of these buildings was as a crematorium and they were adapted only in the planning stage, what has to happen is the bodies have to be taken from the semi-basement where they have been murdered up to the ground level where the crematoria ovens are. And that, of course, creates a bottleneck in the whole 
disposal and killing process, yet again we see this is an improvised solution and the alteration of a building that was originally going to have one purpose and now has two purposes. But from the Nazi perspective, it's a much more efficient way of killing than either the peasant cottages or the crematorium in the main camp or working people to death or whatever. And it's efficient because by now it only needs a small number of SS to be running that complex, along with a larger number of prisoners under commander who are forced on pain of their own immediate death to assist in the killing process by removing the bodies and by burning the bodies and so on. It's not until later in 1943, two new crematoria emerge in Birkenau, which are crematoria gas chamber complexes that were designed from the planning stages to be that. So that's the very last stage of this evolutionary process of mass murder. And these two new crematoria gas chambers are all on one level. So you see how the SS have looked at the problems that they face. Again, problems in quotation marks. They've looked at the difficulties that they had and they've now established these two new crematoria gas chamber complexes, which is the end of the evolution within the camp of the method and methodology of killing. And what remains of those buildings today? In the final days of Auschwitz, when it was clear that the Red Army were advancing on the camp, there was an order given to blow up these, we might call killing factories, the four different crematoria gas chamber complexes in Auschwitz, and they were blown up. There is more remains of the crematoria, the two crematoria that were opened at earlier in 1943 than the two I've just mentioned that were opened later in the year and were the ones that were planned from the beginning to be combination crematoria gas chambers. Those two, there's little but the actual foundations to see. With the the other two crematoria, you can get more of a sense of them. But again, the very fact that they were going to be destroyed like this shows you once again how keen the SS were to cover up the terrible crime. You've written that Auschwitz, through its destructive dynamism, was actually the physical embodiment of the fundamental values of the Nazi state. What what do you mean by that? I think that's true at, at a, both a conceptual and a practical level. Conceptually, Hitler's racist ideas that only certain people deserve to live are at the back of all of this. Fueled by his warped, nonsensical theories, he concluded that the Jews were a unique threat. And once they arrived at Auschwitz, they were going to either be selected for immediate death, if they were of no use to the Nazis, that's to say they couldn't be worked to death, or they were going to be worked to death. Then when they're sufficiently weak and can no longer function and be of use to the Nazi state, they're taken back and killed in Birkenau themselves. So it's a horrible kind of notion. Well, the whole thing is horrible, of course, but it's a particularly mendacious, ghastly notion of human beings. They have no intrinsic worth at all. There's no humanity of any kind in this. There's no sense of individuals being anything other than a crude mechanism of use. And conceptually, this is the Nazi ideological notion of human worth absolutely epitomized in one physical place. Of course, we need to say the vast majority of people who did die here in the end were Jews. Around 1,100,000 people died in Auschwitz, 
vast majority, a million, are, were Jews. But there were also Polish political prisoners who died there. There were Sinti and Roma, who the Nazis called gypsies, and others. So that's the conceptual way in which I think you can see it, epitomizing the fundamental values of the Nazi state. At a practical level, you see it, I think, in what we've just been talking about, which is the evolution of the killing facilities at the camp, how local initiatives come forward within the camp to help make Hitler's vision happen. This is a a complicated piece of history because it's not just top-down orders, but an interaction of orders from above and initiatives from below. But let's make no mistake about it, Hitler's central to all of this. You've been studying Auschwitz for a long time. Is there one warning or message that you take from this? I've had the privilege of meeting a number of survivors of the camp. And one of the things I take from it is that in the face of all this absolute world of nightmare, you have to look and see that there was the power of the human spirit to survive, of not just giving up. So I think that that's why it's so vital that we hear and listen to survivor testimony, not something we've talked about here because we're talking about the evolution of the camp. But nonetheless, it's vital that we we give space and time within the historiography and within this history to listening to those stories because they are so central, not just to revealing what it was like on a, on a physical level to be living through this suffering, but also because they speak to the notion that human beings can survive and can find a way to survive in in some of the most horrendous situations ever devised. I also think it's important to remember that what the Nazis did here was bring into the world something new and utterly vile, which was the attempt to use a form of mechanized extermination to destroy in a essentially in a short period of time an entire people. And as I say at the end of my book on Auschwitz, once allowed into the world, knowledge of what they did must not be unlearned. Yes, I think that's very true. Thank you very much.